before I start, I want you to turn up your volume really, really loud. Like all the way to the top. Okay, are you ready? Howdy, everybody! If you fell for that, it's your own fault. It's because you miss me. Anyway, um, hey guys, I'm a different face. What's up? So today they've asked me so nicely to do the announcements like the old times guys. Wait, I miss you guys. I miss you guys. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you eating? What are you eating? Are you eating something? Are you drinking coffee? Are you drinking coffee in church? I'm watching you. Anyway, guys, miss you guys so much. Going crazy, but it is what it is. Look like a hobo. But aren't we all? Anyway, um, so guys, this is the top that's coming up in the next couple days. So on Sunday, the 10th of May at 11, we have grade 8 to 9 online Zoom meetup. So we're just having like a nice little get together for the grade 8s and 9s. Uh, so you just need to get a Zoom link. It's going to be sent in the Illumination group and join then. And then grade 10s to 12s, your Zoom meetup is next Sunday, the 17th of May at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, so yeah, just uh, tune in for that and kind of come in. We'll send the Zoom link, like I said. And then last on our announcements is we have a live Q&A Zoom session on the 24th of May. So this is where everybody can come together and we can just ask questions and like, you know, kind of dig into whatever we're digging into at the moment. So, yeah, tune in for those three things. So just to just go through them again, we have grade 8 and 9's Zoom meetup this Sunday at 11 o'clock. Then next Sunday, the 17th of May at 11 o'clock, we have grade 10's to 12's. And then lastly, on the 24th of May, we have a live Q&A session with your leaders asking questions and just any questions from the series and what we've been doing on the 24th of May at 11 o'clock. All of them are at 11. All of them are in the Sundays to come. So the next three Sundays. And yeah, so eight and nine is this Sunday, 10s, 12s next Sunday. And then the last Sunday we have everybody all together for a live Q&A. Please come through guys. I mean, obviously if you have the data, we're not trying to be that guy. Actually, you have data if you're watching me, technically. Anyway, but yeah. Cool. See you then. Welcome again. We're in the second part of Esther. Thanks, Tracy, so much for welcoming us and getting us into the mood of things. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get straight into our second talk on Esther. Uh, if you missed the first talk on Esther, you can go find it on our Church at Home page. Just search under Sunday Services, then go to the Illumination Youth Talks, and Black did a brilliant overview of the book of Esther. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to pray and get straight into things. So let me pray. Father God, I do thank you that you are with us now. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be on me. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be on those who are listening. And I pray that you change us so that we become better people. Amen. If you guys know me, then you know that I'm a massive fan of the Marvel movies. I'm I especially loved what Marvel achieved through those 22 movies that made up the Infinity Saga. Because they started like 20, 20 years ago, and when you watch those first ones with Iron Man, you get to know the characters in the beginning. But over the 22 year films, they really build up this love in you for the characters that you're watching. And eventually, you get to the point where you, you think that this united group is, this, is basically this unstoppable awesome team that can take on anything. 
That is, until you get to the film just before Infinity War, which was Captain America Civil War. In this, the team is put to the test and they break apart. The unity is destroyed. And they go from this team that can take on anybody to pretty much the underdog team that almost anyone can take out. Then to add insult to injury, this weak Avengers team comes across pretty much the most hectic bad guy in the whole of the the um, Marvel Universe, Cinematic Universe, which is Thanos. And he comes up in Infinity War. Now, we've seen glimpses of him throughout the previous 22 films, but when it hits Infinity War, he comes onto the screen and he is massive. He is pretty much greater than any other bad guy that they've ever faced before. Now, I love this because... Um, the reason why this is such a great way of telling stories is because when you watch Infinity War, Infinity War ends with this complete hopelessness. And when you leave the theater, you leave thinking the following things. You leave thinking Thanos is far too great for the Avengers to ever take on. You leave thinking the Avengers are just this weak group of people and you are left feeling like there's no hope. And that is an awesome way of telling stories because then what happens is when you go in to watch Endgame and the heroes suddenly find some way of getting back at Thanos, your spirits are lifted because you thought that there was no way that Thanos could be taken out. And yet, these, the heroes managed to find a way of defeating him. Now I think... So, so let me just tell you that in, in these three chapters, the first three chapters of Esther that we're going to look at today, we're going to see pretty much the infinity war of the story. We are going to see that the Jewish people are face, face a man which is a god in himself. It's Xerxes. Well, he appears like a god, Xerxes. And under Xerxes' leadership, they are pretty much nearly flattened. And you are left wondering if God can actually help them at all, if there's any way out. And it's a good message for us to hear today because I think that there are times in life when we feel like there's no way out. We get into a situation called a catch-22. A catch-22 is when a situation is so impossible that you feel like there's actually just no way out. There's no solution. You've looked at every angle in, you, in your mind and you think that there's no way out. And sometimes what we do is we think, because we think there's no way out, and because we cannot see a possible way out, we therefore think that there's no ways that God can save us from this. You know, like when you, when you fail too many exams during the year and you think, it's definite, I'm going to fail the year. There is no ways, no way that God can possibly get me out of this suffering. And when... When we doubt God in those moments, that's when we doubt the power of God. And in this story, we see in chapters 1 through 3 that God's power is put into question. And it feels like there's no way that God will help his people out of their struggles. So I'm going to jump straight into the story. So why don't you open your Bibles with me? We're starting with chapter 1, verse 1. And the first point is the glory of Xerxes. Okay. So the story starts off by introducing us to the Thanos of the story. And when we read it, 
I want you to see that the author is wanting us to see just how great and glorious King Xerxes is. So verse 1. Now in the days of Azarus, so Azarus is just another name for Xerxes, the Azarus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Stop there. In those days, you've got to realize that most of the continents of the world had not been discovered yet. So in fact, only a small part of the world had actually been discovered. So when it's said that Xerxes ruled from India to Ethiopia, it means that he pretty much ruled most of the world. This is the first thing the author tells us about Xerxes. He's practically the ruler of the world. Now how glorious, how awesome, how mighty does this man have to be if he's basically the king of the world? Of course he must be awesome. Now, of the people he ruled, the Jews were one of those groups. And last week, Black shared the situation of the Jewish people. He told us how they were a happy nation by themselves, united, totally together. And then what happened is the Babylonians came in, and the Babylonians defeated them and took them off to their own land. Now, because Babylon was such a big empire, the Jewish group nation was dispersed amidst this whole nation. It would be like America the United States of America attacking Mexico. A united group of people suddenly dispersed amidst the whole American empire. Okay, So what was united before is now spread. No longer united. And that's key to the rest of the story. But then what happened is the Babylonians were then taken over by the Persians. And Xerxes was the leader at that time. And so Xerxes has now taken over the Babylon rule. Let's carry on reading about what else it says about Xerxes. In those days, when King Azarus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So he has this party, and the author mentions most of the important leaders of the time came to his party. This gives more evidence of how great he is. If you had to invite all the great leaders in the world to your house for a party, well, let me tell you that they wouldn't likely come. And it's not because you're ugly. It's not because you're a bad person at all. It's because you and I were nobodies, right? But if Barack Obama invites a ton of people to his house, they'll go, especially because he's a great person. That's the reason why they would go. If he invites a whole lot of great leaders to his place, people are going to come. He ain't going to come for you and me. <laughs> We're nobodies. So what? what is the point of this party that King Xerxes is holding? Verse 3b, let's carry on reading. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and the princes were before him, while he showed, here it is, the riches of his royal glory and the splendor in pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So basically, the point of the party is for him to show off how great and amazing he is. How arrogant do you have to be to show people how great and amazing you are for 180 days? Okay, 180 days. That's half a year. 365 days divided by two. You're pretty much 180 is just before the halfway point. Okay, 
that is a huge party to show off yourself. But you need to think about this, right? Every day, he had something to show them of just how great and amazing he was. Now, we're not quite sure exactly what he showed them, but we kind of get a glimpse from, or we kind of get an implication in verse 6 that it was probably material things. Which means he likely on day one, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but he could have maybe shown them his fleet of horses. And the next day, he shows all his Persian mugs worth millions. And maybe his famous paintings, I don't know, by the Rembrandts of the time or whatever. They were probably worth millions of dollars that he has up on his walls. And he has a different material thing for every day. Enough to keep these people entertained for half the year. I mean, if you went to a house where the person showed like a fleet of expensive, the most expensive cars in the world that was attached to a house that, I don't know, made your school look tiny, you'd think, man, this guy's big cheese. And so the author is telling us this, this about Xerxes because he wants us to see just how great and grand Xerxes is. I mean, look at look at the some of the stuff that he has. Verse six: there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver. I mean, who has couches of gold and silver? I mean, how impractical. Couches of gold and silver. I mean, they're uncomfortable. The only reason you'd have them is to show off to people just how grand and powerful you are. You're basically saying, look how rich I am. Carries on. I'm reading from the second half of verse 6. Um, Couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavements of potpourri, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. I mean, I don't even know what half this stuff is. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kind, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. In other words, they had an endless supply of alcohol. Why? Because the king had that much money. Now, I said to you I did not know what many of those things were, but there are some things that I did know from that passage. And and some of these things, the violet curtains, the marble pillars, and the things made out of gold, were all things that you would actually find in a Jewish temple. Now, why am I mentioning this to you? Well, because if you were a Jewish reader, the moment you got to this section of the book of Esther, alarm bells should be going off. Why? So the temple was considered the place where God dwelt amidst his people. They didn't think he really lived there. But they knew the temple symbolized God's presence amidst his people. It symbolized God's home. The things within the temple were placed there to show how glorious and great God was. So they didn't just have any old thing in the temple that might make God look like trade trash. Um, No, they had violet curtains, they had marble pillars, and things made out of gold. So why, again, do I say that if you were a Jew, alarm bells should be going off in your head? Well, if Xerxes has appears, so has similar stuff in the place of his dwelling, the gold, 
the curtains, the marble. Then Xerxes appears as glorious and majestic as God. In other words, the author is trying to show you just how majestic Xerxes appears to be. He appeared to be as majestic as God. Now you might think, how could someone appear to be as majestic as God? I mean, God's majesty is seen in more than just gold and silver. I mean, he's the creator of all, so you see his majestic in creation. No mere human being could be as majestic as God, but you've got to understand one thing. Back then, people believed that kings were gods. They believed that kings were divine. So often what they would do is they would erect statues to these kings, which people would worship. You might have even seen this this kind of thinking in the movie 300, where Xerxes is actually portrayed in the movie as God, as a God. So what a Jewish reader would have realized when they got to this section of the book is that Xerxes is a great God who is being compared to the Jewish God. And this is key to understanding the passage, because when you understand this, it unlocks what the author is trying to do in the first three chapters of the book. The author is trying to show you that Xerxes appears against the God of the Jews and is compared to the God of the Jews. And the result is that Xerxes appears greater than God. Why does he appear greater? Well, three things. Number one, think back to verse one, where we saw Xerxes was worshipped throughout the world. God at this point in time is only the God of the Jews. So yes, God is the God of the whole world. But remember, from the, from the Jews' perspective, he had called himself the God of the Jews. And he was looking after his Jewish people. Not many other people in the other parts of the world had even found out about this God. But everybody knew who Xerxes was. He brings together important people from all over his empire. So Xerxes had, remember, all the leaders from the different parts of the world, he had united them. But was there any unity within God's people? Well, not much, because they were dispersed. <laughs> they were dispersed amidst the empire. In fact, they had lost their unity as a country. The third thing is, look at the life Xerxes offers. Xerxes literally creates heaven on earth. The parties for his leaders in verse 3 last up to 180 days. That's half a year. The party for his own people, uh, of his own city, the city of Susa in verse uh, 4, lasts for seven days. Now, granted, that's not as long as 180 days, but if you had to go to a party that lasted that long, it's a long time. And at these parties... Alcohol was endless, as we saw earlier in verse 8. And the king said this to his staff, also in verse 8. He said to the staff that people could do with the staff whatever they pleased. In other words, people could live out their sexual fantasies with the staff, and the staff simply, well, the staff could not say no to it. So these people were living out their wildest fantasies partying all the time in this lavish place that was in, had so much great stuff in it that 
the king had 180 days to show it off. They lived in heaven and earth. What about God's people? Well, we know that they're dispersed. They no longer have that unity under God. And in fact, as the story continues, instead of God's people looking like they're going to get blessed, it actually looks like everything's going to fall apart for them because they get told that they're going to be wiped out, that they're going to be obliterated. So this first point of the sermon looked at the greatness of Xerxes. And the second point is that the Xerxes is an oppressive king. So we've seen that Xerxes is great. We've seen that he's amazing. But does he do good with his powers? The answer is he doesn't. And in fact, he's actually quite an oppressive and childish ruler. So we're going to skip ahead to verse 10. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you the story. Um, So the king gets drunk on wine. In verse 10, it says that he was merry uh, in the English translation, but the Hebrew is a little bit more blunt than that. He was drunk. And he asks for his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and dance for his party. When the queen refuses, he gets angry, probably because no one ever says no to this guy. And after chatting with his wise men, he signs a decree which says that the queen may never enter his presence again. And then he says that not only should the queen never disrespect him, but he sets a law that no woman should ever disrespect their husband, ever. How crazy is that? I mean, in one foul swoop, he gets rid of the queen and makes a law that no woman can disrespect their husband. Now, you need to see the childishness in this because he has, because he has his feelings hurt by a woman who refuses to dance. He gets rid of her, fires her, and basically oppresses all other women. Now, you've got to know, at that time, uh, once you reached a certain age, you were married off. So there was very few single women, uh, which means that majority of women were actually married, which means that majority of women were oppressed. And we're going to see that out of the women who weren't married, they're going to be oppressed as well. So he basically oppressed women, and that's the first thing that he does. And it's the first sign of oppression in the story. But it doesn't end there. He actually gets even worse at oppressing until his oppression reaches a point where the Jewish people are actually going to be completely wiped out. At least they're told that they're going to be completely wiped out. So in chapter 2, when the queen is fired... The king's men go searching for a new queen. And they search the entire known world for virgins. And once again, the English translation is a little weak here. What it says in chapter 2, verse 2, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. It would actually be better to say, Let beautiful young virgins be grabbed from their homes, be taken against their will to the king. I've obviously added a lot more in there, but the reason I'm saying that is because the words sought out in the English translations are a little bit uh, nice. Uh, It's a lot harsher 
Gives them sort out. They should have been. They should have said grabbed or removed forcefully. So if you weren't married, and you thought you were safe from that original oppression that the king talked about, no, you weren't, because now if you're an attractive woman who isn't married, in other words, you're a virgin, you were at stake of being oppressed. And dare I say this, and you'll see why I say this, but even more oppressed than perhaps some of these married women were. So these women are grabbed. They get taken before the king and forced to join him in a version of what so- of what looks like something like The Bachelor. Okay, I don't know if you've seen The Bachelor. The Bachelor is a show where basically a whole bunch of uh, women um, come to a house and they spend time with one guy and he, over a period of weeks, kind of um, sort of sends the woman he doesn't like home until eventually at the end he's left with what he calls the love of his life which is the last woman standing so it's a contest to see who which woman will stay the longest with him this kind of happens here this huge group of women come from all over the um the persian empire they uh, come to the king's courts and then these the king's people look at these women and they sort of um send some back home until they've left with a group of women that then go before the king and then he chooses which one he wants to marry. Now, at the point when the most of the women are sent home, um, when the king's people have chosen the best group for him, the women that are remaining, before they go to the king, they go on this seriously intense beautifying process. In fact, it's a beautifying process which in verse 12 says that it lasts for 12 months. So it's 12 months of beauty treatment. Now, if you think, man, that's amazing, you'll be sickened by what it's for. It's basically there to make the woman into sexual objects. At the end of verse 12, it tells us that for six months, the woman, the woman's skins were treated with myrrh. So the first half of the 12-month process, the six months, they put on this myrrh, their skins treated with it. And if you look at the book of Songs and Songs, you see that myrrh was used to make people sexually more desirable. And secondly, once you were beautiful, once the beautifying process was over, you'd spend an evening with the king. Where after you return to Shazgaz, who is one of the king's um, men, who looked after the concubines. So in other words, you'd spend a night with them and go back to be with the rest of the prostitutes. So what the text is pointing at there is it's saying that basically these women were prostituted to the king for an evening. Which means the evening you spent with the king was likely sexual, and after doing your prostitute-like act, you would go and join the rest of the concubines. So basically, the beautification was there to make you sexually de- desirable. In other words, the king didn't want the woman's personalities, he wanted their bodies. And everything was done to make their body more desirable. They were not people to the king, but objects. And since he was so powerful, he could take the most attractive women and make them into prostitutes. 
Now, as the story goes, Esther becomes the one whom the king chooses. But you need to realize something. According to history, women who were not chosen by the king would not go home to their families afterwards. They were forced to live with the king for the rest of their lives. So I'm going to get back to Esther right at the end. But you might think that the oppression has reached its lowest point. It still hasn't. So though all the married women are oppressed because they can't speak to their men in a certain way, they have to be respectful by law. And although the attractive virgins might be oppressed, the third character um, tells us that this God Xerxes oppresses the entire Jewish race by basically signing a, sign a petition. He signs a decree that their lives are going to be taken. So in the beginning of chapter 3, a new character enters. And we're nearly at the end of this talk. And his name is Haman. And he is made second to the king. So the, the king decrees that people, all people, should bow down to Haman when they see him. However, there's one person who doesn't. And this person Black spoke about last week. He's one of the heroes in the story. and We're going to hear more about him as the story continues in, in the next few sermons. Uh, his name is Mordecai, uh, who Black gave him the nickname Morty, Uncle Morty. So we're going to stick with Uncle Morty. Um, and Uncle Morty uh, doesn't bow down. And this enrages Haman. And just like that childish thing that the king does when the, the queen doesn't dance for him and he causes her to be sacked and the entire, all of women to suddenly be oppressed. So Haman orders a decree that says that all the Jewish people are to be oppressed. But his oppression is even worse than that of, of, of uh, the king's because He's not only just oppressing people, he actually wants them completely wiped out. And it's not just, um, it's, and it's all the Jewish people, which includes uh, Uncle Morty himself, and it includes Esther. Now what happens is the king reads this decree in chapter 3, verse 10, and he signs it with his signet ring. And it's a ring that only the king has. And only the king, if he uses that signet ring to stamp and uh, to stamp a decree um, can make that decree binding. So this ring is what makes a decree binding, and it cannot, once that signet ring seals a document, that means that that law, that that signet ring is, uh, has made a print on, that law is binding. It cannot be reversed. It cannot be changed. And so he decrees that the Jewish people shall be wiped out. So, when you get to the story, you think to yourself, man, God is with you. You see that King Xerxes and whatever, and the people who are ruling underneath them, they seem to be winning. This godlike person, Xerxes, is so powerful that he outweighs the God of the world. In fact, other gods seem to be winning because in the beginning of chapter 3, we find that this Haman dude, uh, when he is, uh, sorry, not beginning of chapter 3, 
so halfway in chapter 3, we find that this Hammond dude, uh, he gets so upset with Mordecai that he consults the gods. And the gods actually give him the date to in which he should destroy the Jews. In other words, <laughs> that even even all the other gods seem to be greater than 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 the God of the Jews, because because they're actually doing something. They've set a date. People are wondering, where's the God of the Bible? These people just seem to be getting more and more oppressed. Now I'm going to stop the story here, and we can carry on with it more next week. But I want you to feel something with me. Because the story might not feel far removed from us. In your life, you might be dealing with suffering that you feel that there is no way out of. You're feeling oppressed. Now the word oppressed means to be pushed down. And you might actually feel like something is pressing you down. Like you cannot escape. Like God's people, you might be feeling that there is no way out. The signet ring on your life has been sealed, and you know your fate, and it's only doom. You might actually be feeling this during COVID-19. Perhaps you think that there is no escaping this virus. The effect it's had on your friends and your family and even yourself is so scary that you think that there is no way out. The weight of this problem is far too heavy. And God can't possibly lift it. You can't see how God will get you out. Maybe God doesn't have the power to do what you think is completely impossible. I'm kind of going to leave you in this space. The sermon is going to end a little bit like Infinity War with no hope. But I want you to do do two things. One... Join us next week as Black goes through the next chapters. And join us the week after that as we finish off the book of Esther. The second thing is just have a quick look back uh, at chapter 3 because there's a glimpse of hope. You see, Esther, Esther, when she wins the the king's heart, she doesn't stay a sexual object to the king because verse 17 uses a key word. It says, Esther won favor in the sight of the king. In other words, she won him over. She made him like her. She had something that was far more than good looks. She had a fighting spirit. So in a story where it seems like there is completely hopelessness, there's a glimmer of hope. And we're going to see just what that glimmer of hope turns into next week. I'm going to pray for us quickly. Father God, some of us feel like we're in despair right now. We feel like like there's no hope. We feel like there's no power. We feel like you are far away from us. Father, I pray that you will help us see that this isn't the case. I pray that you will bring us back here next week, that we can hear about the hope that you have. And I do pray, Lord, that you will help us see that sometimes there is glimmer of hope in our hope in our lives. Uh, we may not see it right now, but hopefully we'll see it in the future. I pray this all in your amazing name. Amen.